We'll go ahead and grab a seat. And good morning. We have, man, a full house, and I love it. Uh, we are so excited to be here with you guys, excited to uh, be a few weeks in. Uh, if this is your first time joining us, my name is Jacob Smith. Uh, I'm our college teaching director here. I know we have a lot of parents here right now because they came to the home game. Good job. 12th man did its job effectively. Uh, we, we trounced them. Lord knows we needed to. So we uh, are here and today, and I'm excited to share with you. Uh, I've been kind of, I, I told a historical tale a few weeks ago, and it just kind of scratched this itch. I was a history major at Texas A&M University, uh, and I am just, just for whatever reason with you guys, I'm just on a historical kick. And so I'm going to tell you today about a lovely couple in the 10th century uh, in the nation of Kiev. Uh, in Kiev, there was a, a princess named Olga and a prince named Igor. Uh, just the classic fairy tale. <laughs> Igor and Olga. Uh, Olga seen here. And she and uh, Igor, they were enjoying a wonderful 10th century life. Up until about nine, or sorry, 945 AD, 945 AD, Igor, her husband, the prince, the ruler of, of Kiev, he was out collecting tribute, collecting taxes from the neighboring nation of uh, Drevli, or oh gosh, Dr- they were the Drevlians, okay? So he was going to the Drevlians, and he asked them, hey, you know, you need to pay me tribute. They were like, we don't want to pay you tribute, and so they killed him, all right? That's the way it worked back then. Uh, don't work for the IRS in the 10th century. And they... He goes to them, he's murdered. Uh, his son, their son was too young to take over. So instead, Olga was put uh, in charge of the nation of Kiev. She was made the ruler of Kiev. Uh, here she is getting her cool bathrobe. And so they decided that as Olga with the king, or as the queen, as the ruler, the Drevlians, the, their neighbors, they looked at her and they thought, oh, this is going to be easy. Like, this is, she's a pushover. Like it's a, it's a woman, it's an unwed woman in the 10th century that's like, what? Like a unicorn? They're like, that doesn't even like make sense. What's happening? They figure, well, she's going to be a pushover. And what she needs, what she really needs, this is what the Drevelians thought, what she really needs is a husband. And so they start sending her suitors. They start sending eligible young bachelors uh, from their government, from their royal lines, uh, to wed her, to woo her and wed her so that they would have, basically, they would take over rule through that marriage. They would have their own guy on the throne. It would be beautiful. Uh, now, as they're sending these men, these suitors to her, uh, Olga is understandably still just kind of wrapped up in that soft, downy blanket of horrifying rage because they murdered her husband, right? They murdered him just straight up. And so whenever they're sending these guys to her, she could have been really upset, but she kind of put on a face. She was like, hey, you know what? Uh, This is great. She managed to put on her party smile, uh, welcomed them all. And in fact, was so gracious as a hostess, she told them, hey, when you come, uh, my people are going to meet you at the shore. They're, they're sailing there in boats. They're going to meet you at the shore. And in fact, they're going to carry your boat. They're going to pick up your boat and they're going to carry it to the castle. So you don't have to worry about walking. You don't have to worry about hiring horses or anything like that. They're going to carry the boat for you, with you in it. And so her guys showed up. They picked up the boats of the suitors. They brought it to the castle. As soon as they got into the courtyard, uh, they took those boats and they dumped them directly into this giant trench. And Olga had them all buried alive, just right, just right off the bat. Uh, so all these suitors dumped in, buried alive, they're done. Now she sent word though to the people in the, the other Drevelians. She said, hey, um, the, great idea. Thanks for sending the bachelors. Uh, 
I had to give out some roses, and I eventually narrowed it down to this one guy, and I've accepted the proposal. She told him, hey, I accepted the proposal. We're going to have this beautiful wedding feast, uh, so come on. So even more Drevelians came down to help prepare the wedding. They're like, okay, this is great, you know, getting the flowers and the stuff. And they're like, okay, we're going to make this happen. Uh, And as they got there, she was like, welcome, welcome. We're going to get started pretty soon. But in the meantime, here, come into this bathhouse, kind of like a spa. Come into this spa and and just relax. You've had a long journey. They all go inside the bathhouse. She immediately locks the doors behind them and sets the whole building on fire. So they all die. All right. So at this point, the Drevelians, to their credit, are the most optimistic people. (laughs) Despite being murders, murderers, they are incredibly optimistic. And they decide, oh my gosh, some people died in this bathhouse accident? We'll come to the funeral. And so they sent <laughs> dignitaries from their government to attend the funeral. Uh, I'm assuming as they were walking through past the giant mass grave and the burning wreckage of a bathhouse, they're unfaced. And they sit down for the funeral. They have a nice ceremony. And then they start just getting wasted. That's what you did at funerals back then. So they're just getting, dr- they're just getting just plastered. And as soon as they all got nice and funeral drunk, uh, Olga sent in some mercenaries, some hired guys, and they killed all of the Drevelians in attendance, 5,000 of them, okay, were here at this funeral, all dead. All right, so at this point, Olga's like, why do I keep waiting for them to come to me? Why don't I just go to them? And so she rounds up her army. They go uh, to the Drevelian capital city, and they try an all-out assault. It doesn't quite work, and so, you know, they, they put it under siege, and it doesn't, it's not working too well. Uh, but so instead, she decides, okay, this assault's not working. We're not taking it by force. Uh, so she told the dream, and she said, okay, look, I'll leave, all right? I'll go. She says, but all I want, all I want from you before I leave, you murdered my husband. Granted, I murdered like 10,000 a year people. Hey, bygones be bygones. Let's just say, let's just say we're even. If you just give me, I want every home to give me a few doves, all right? That was her request. She said, I want, I want you to send me every household needs to give me two or three doves as a sign of peace and prosperity, and I'm going to leave. So they do that. The Drevelians are like, deal. We don't want to have this battle. Like, you know, I can't go in bathhouses anymore. I'm way too scared. Like, I'm just going to give you these doves, and you can go. They give her the doves, and that night, <laughs> she took all those doves, and she tied hot, burning coals to their feet. She attached them with string, had her people all do this. And then that night, she released the doves into the air, seen here, and they <laughs> flew back into the capital city, right? They went home. They're like, well, I don't want to hang out out here. I'm going to go back to my roost. And so all of these doves with burning coals on their feet flew back into the city. The entire city burst into flames. And as the entire capital city is burning down, some people try to escape. And as they're escaping, she's waiting outside and she kills or enslaves every single person who survived the fire all the time looking like this. All right, so this is Olga. That was Olga. This is a thing that happened. This is an actual historical event. And this is a time where we see, man, there were very 
far-reaching consequences based on just a few people's decisions, right? It started off, Olga, she experienced turmoil. She suffered because of the decision of these dreamers to murder her husband. It affected her in a negative way. And so what she decided to do is, hey, in the midst of this pain, I'm going to seek revenge after these other people. And so she starts to bring them into her city. She's murdering them. She goes to their town, sets it all on fire. Man, what we see here is just an incredibly large-scale example of the fact that when our mistakes are made, it affects more than just us. The reality is we've all been there, right? The truth is we've all felt the consequences of someone else's selfish decision. We've all suffered because of someone else's mistake. The reality is that sin spreads. That's the reality of our existence. It's the truth about the human condition. Sin spreads. And when that happens, we as individuals a lot of times go one of two directions. When we're suffering because of someone else's selfishness, when I'm suffering because of someone else's sin, I either want to generally repress that, just kind of like lock it away and not deal with it and be like, oh, okay, let's just move on. Or I go the ogre route and I seek revenge and I do whatever I can to make them suffer in return. I do whatever I can to, to push back against that person who, who hurt me. And either way, our culture affirms those decisions. Our culture affirms those desires. Why? Why would our culture affirm our desire to either repress those situations, to use it as kind of this bottled up energy motivation for our life, or to seek revenge, to bring about our own sense of personal justice? Why is that affirmed by our culture? I'll tell you, it's because our culture embraces relativism. Meaning that our culture believes that everyone just following their own path, that if everyone just did exactly what they think is best, if that happened, it would result in perfect peace and harmony. That's what our culture believes. That's what we preach and practice as a culture. That's why for these last few weeks, for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking in the book of Judges. Because what we see in the book of Judges is another culture that embraced relativism. And instead of finding peace and harmony and happiness at the end of that road, what they found was rebellion and destruction and death. That's what they found. What we see in the book of Judges is a perfect picture for why we as believers are called to reject relativism. So that we can embrace God's path. Because he alone knows what's best. And because his path alone leads to life. Instead of the death that we see everywhere else. We might think it's best in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering. We might think it's best to repress that issue. We might think it's best to seek revenge. But as believers, God calls us to seek resolution, to seek restoration with that person that hurt us or with that person that we hurt. Because when we seek those things, when we seek forgiveness and resolution and restoration, God is faithful to bring about repentance, which is the ultimate goal. This morning we're going to be in Judges chapter 11, and we're looking at this idea of spreading sin through the perspective, through the life of a guy named Jephthah. So if you go to Judges 11 in your Bible, there's Bibles around you or in an app or whatever you use, 
Uh, we actually start a couple verses before that. But what we see in Judges, just at the very end of 10, is that the Ammonites assembled and camped in Gilead, and that the Israelites gathered together and camped in Mizpah. And the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is willing to lead the charge against the Ammonites? He will become the leader of all who live in Gilead. Basically, we open up and we see that the tr- a tribe of Israel, Gilead, they are under attack once again for worshiping false gods. If we went back earlier, we would see they've been worshiping false gods of the nations around them, the, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Moabites. And these gods, man, they take you down dark paths. These gods, these, these people, they were known for worshiping uh, things like sex and, and violence uh, and human sacrifice. Well, that's what the, that was their calling card. That's what Israel is starting to fall into. And so God in his judgment says, okay, I'm going to bring in this oppression. You're going to be uh, oppressed by these people. And so Israel's finding themselves oppressed. They're like, oh my gosh, we have to fight against these Ammonites and they don't have anyone to lead them. So they're saying, if anyone would just lead this charge, he would become leader. We see this incredible pressing need. And then the camera pans to Jephthah. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a brave warrior. His mother was a prostitute, but Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife also gave him sons. When his wife's sons grew up, they made Jephthah leave, and they said to him, you are not going to inherit any of our father's wealth because you are another woman's son. So Jephthah left his half-brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Lawless men joined Jephthah's gang, and they traveled with him. Just as they're crying out, just as Israel has this incredible pressing need who do we see? Jephthah. And as soon as we flash onto his face, as soon as he's lined up just perfectly in the shot with his hair just flowing and his beard wafting, we have a flashback. We have the, and we see where'd he come from? We find, oh, his mom was a prostitute. Oh, okay. And his dad was this leader in the tribe, but all of his sons, uh, they didn't like Jephthah, right? So they saw his dad was like, oh, okay, you can come stay with us, I guess. And his sons, when Gilead died, his sons were like, hey, you got to get out of here. You're not going to get any of this inheritance. You're this half-son. You're not a part of our actual family. So he's forced out. He has to go to Tob. And when he gets there, he just kind of finds this ragtag bunch of misfits, and he starts leading them. What we see here is actually a term we saw a week ago. It's these empty men. When it says lawless, it's literally empty, meaning that they did nothing going on. And so they're just like, hey, I guess I'll follow Jephthah. He's got a great beard. And so they start hanging out, and he's leading them. We're essentially looking at, you know, the mighty ducks of our scripture. Like this is this guy who's kind of an outcast or grown-up version of mighty ducks, guardians of the galaxy. You see this guy who's forced out of a normal society and he kind of bands together with these kind of ruffians, they're kind of rough and one of them's green and another one's a tree and he can't talk. And they were like, okay, what are these guys going to do? And they're just kind of riding around Tobe and they're doing a good deal or just sort of being guys. And what we see here is that Jephthah though is in this time, he's learning and experiencing leadership. And he's growing his ability to command men and, and people and send them in directions. And he's growing in terms of battle ability. But why, right? Why is he in this position? Why was he forced to, to stay in this foreign land? Well, it ultimately was because of his father's sin. Why is Jephthah here? It's because his dad was selfish. Because his dad, Gilead, decided, you know what? What I want, what's best for me, is to have sex with this prostitute. And so I'm going to neglect my marriage vows. I'm going to neglect the, the well-being of my children. And my sin, the, his dad's sin, it spread. Right? It spread beyond himself. That selfishness caused harm in Jephthah's life. 
I have a nine-month-old daughter. whose name is Charlotte. She's amazing. Talked about her before. We had a picnic yesterday. It was fun. And we know her, love her, and we're watching her grow. And one of the amazing things about as she's growing is she has these new abilities, right? She can sit up, which is pretty crazy. They can't do that day one. Uh, but now she can. Uh, and she is learning also more than that. She's learning to pull up. She's learning to pull up on stuff. All right, so she'll find like chairs or ottomans or, or cabinets. She has some shelves in her house that she loves to pull up on. All right, so she'll just whoop, go up there. Now, the problem is, is that Charlotte has no concept of gravity, right? Like she hasn't, we haven't quite gotten there in physics yet. And so she doesn't quite understand the concept of gravity, of falling, of things having weight, right? She knows that when it comes to cup towers, as we talked about previously. But she, <laughs> she doesn't understand that if she lets go of that shelf, she will fall to the ground, right? That's the way the world works. And she doesn't quite get that. And so whenever I'm with her, and, and when we were hanging out yesterday, and she was starting to pull up and do this awesome trick, uh, I realized, wow, I need to be really attentive to this. Like, I need to be focused on what she's doing. If I'm just caught up in my own thing she will face destruction. She will see her mom or she'll see the dog and she'll be like, oh, hey, oh, and she just falls back time and time again. Just so many times I caught her. Uh, sometimes she lands on her diaper. That's okay. But, you know, the head is fragile and it's 95th percentile. It's very big. So we have to be aware of what she's doing. I need to be focused on what she's doing, on, on how she's behaving. If I'm caught up in my own thing, if I'm busy taking pictures, I thought this was kind of ironic, if I'm busy taking pictures of her standing up, I'm not actually available to catch her if she falls down. Uh, and what we see is that, you know, the selfishness of Jephthah's dad led Jephthah to face suffering, to face destruction. His dad said, it's best for me to have sex with this lady. It's best for me to have sex with this prostitute. And that selfishness hurt his wife. It hurt his children. It hurt his family as a whole. That sin spread. How many of us have been affected deeply by someone else's sin? How many of us still carry those scars from someone else's selfishness, someone else's decision, someone else's mistake? How many of us have hurt others, maybe unintentionally, but we've hurt them through our selfishness? How many of us have had sin in our lives that that spread in ways that we did not expect? Jephthah's father's sin, man, it, it spread. But Gilead's like, no, well, we want you back, right? They, they call us Jephthah, like, we, we need you back. They say when the Ammonites attacked the leaders of Gilead, they asked Jephthah to come back from the land of Tob. They said, come be our commander so we can fight with the Ammonites. The Gilead, they're like, hey, you know what? Sorry, you know, they don't say sorry, actually. They say, hey, come on, come back and be our leader. We, we want you to come lead us. We know that you have this experience leading these men, this military group up in Tob. Come back, lead us against the Ammonites. And Jephthah said to the leaders of Gilead, but you hated me. And you made me leave my father's house. Why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? Gilead regrets their decision. They ask Jephthah to come back, but he's a little bitter, right? And it's a little understandable. He's a little bitter about what happened previously. In this moment, this is a great chance for Gilead to apologize, for them to maybe seek resolution, restoration of that relationship. But instead... The leaders of Gilead said to Jephthah, well, that may be true, uh, but now we pledge to you our loyalty. Come with us and and fight with the Ammonites. Then you will become the leader of all who live in Gilead. 
instead of apologizing, instead of repenting, Gilead just offers power. They just try to sweeten the deal. They say, if you come back, you can control all of the people of Gilead. We'll give you this perk. We'll give you this bonus. We'll give you this power if you just come back. And Jephthah says, all right. All right. If you take me back to fight with the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your leader. Jephthah reiterates this time. He says it again a few verses later. He restates that pledge. He says, okay, just to be clear, if I do this, I'm your leader. You've agreed that you are giving me this power. You're giving me this authority. If I fulfill this role, if I lead you against the Ammonites. What we see is Jephthah walks in and, and he doesn't seek restoration. He doesn't seek resolution with these people. Instead, he just says, you know what? That power sounds great. That authority sounds awesome. Jephthah decided it is best for me to have that power, to have that position, to have that authority. And in taking that, in accepting that deal, what he's doing is he's sacrificing the health of his tribe by just ignoring these issues. He basically moves in. He's like, hey, okay, great. You're going to give me this power? Let's just forget that other stuff. We're not going to resolve it. Let's just forget it. And I need you to realize, maybe you've seen in your life, forgetting is not forgiving. There's a huge difference between forgetting about something and just kind of repressing it and actually forgiving someone, bringing forgiveness and restoration to a relationship. Those things are entirely different. We see this between people and each other, we see this between people and uh, their pets. This is something that I've grown to love in our modern culture, where we are looking at our animals, we're looking at our pets that we pour so much time and energy and money into, and we say, you know what, you're not perfect. And then we let the world know that they're not perfect by posting shaming pictures of them. We put pictures of our dogs where we say, I break into the pantry and hide potatoes all around the house. <laughs> I don't know why. But this dog likes to hide, get potatoes and then hide them. I, probably for a rainy day, he's probably just being kind. We put dogs on our, on our pages and say, I pooped in the house and the robot vacuum smeared it everywhere. <laughs> frowny face. In case you were wondering how they felt about it, it's a frowny face. There's clearly a tension in this relationship, right? There's clearly a, a lack of forgiveness. Maybe they're trying to move on, but maybe not in the most healthy of manners. I stick my head through the shower curtain and I lick people's bums while they aren't looking. <laughs> this dog... This dog has engaged in an activity that probably has caused a lot of frustration and maybe some screams and falling in the shower because he's doing something that's really creepy. And what we see here is them, the owner being like, okay, let's, let's kind of deal with this. Let's work through this. Uh, and you know, this is great and we can laugh and that's wonderful and it's a dog. But man, the reality is that sometimes this is the way we engage with people. Sometimes we're like, oh yeah, remember that time that you did that dumb thing and it really hurt me? Ha <laughs> ha, man, yeah, that was crazy. And we just move on. There's no forgiveness there. We think maybe like, oh, we can just move on and we can just kind of forget about it. We can just kind of repress that and just kind of push it down, never talk about it again. But the reality is that it needs forgiveness. You need restoration. You need resolution to that sin. How many of us are just currently sitting on something with a roommate, with a friend, with a family member, with the person we're dating? And it's an issue that still bothers us. 
It's a, it's a hurt, that's, it's a wound that's still open. But we just don't talk about it. We just kind of swept it under the rug. We just kind of want to uh, shut it down, bottle it up, and maybe we joke about it, or it kind of comes up, and we remind them of it every once in a while, and we hope that that kind of gets it to them. But, man, how many of us are currently sitting on something that needs resolution, an issue, a sin, a pain that needs resolution, that needs restoration, that needs ultimately repentance from us, from that person? We've all been there. We're, we're all going to be there with different people. Jephthah saw it in the tribe and he says, you know what, let's just, let's just move on. His sin, man, his sin, the, the inability to find restoration in that, it's, it's, it's negative, it's bad, and it, it hurts the tribe as a whole. But he just moves on. He says, you know what, let's, let's go deal with this Ammonite thing. Right? Let's, let's just move on. Let's just band together. Let's just forget about that issue. Let's go see what the Ammonites want. So he sent messengers to the Ammonite king saying, why have you come against me to attack my land? He's like, okay, bro, what's up? Ammonite king said to Jephthah's messengers, well, because Israel stole my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon River in the south of the Jabbok River in the north and as far west as the Jordan. Now return it peaceably. Jephthah says, what do you want? The Ammonite, says, the Ammonite king says, your land, right? That's what he says. He says, I want to have all of your land. It was mine, and you took it from me. Now, in the next few verses, Jephthah actually gives him a really great counter argument. He breaks down uh, kind of his counter offer in three parts. He argues historically. Uh, he argues argues theologically, and he argues just from a logical standpoint. He says, historically, he kind of goes through the history of the land of Israel. He, ta- he walks the king through a messenger. He sends him a message says, hey, look, we came from this place, and we went through here, and we talked with this king and that king, and we were in these different places. And he basically outlines flawlessly, look, you have no legitimate claim to this land. The Ammonites had no legitimate claim to the land that the Israelites were on. He also argues theologically. He says, look, You know, you've seen that our God is alive, that our God is real, that Yahweh is and will be. And he has guaranteed us this land. So he says, he tells the king, he says, look, our God has promised this land. Our God, who is the God, the only one true God has promised us this land. You don't have a claim against us. And you're in for a world of pain if you try to take it from us. And then he ends it up with this kind of logical argument of saying, you know what, if you really believe this, if you really had a legitimate claim, if your claim is real, why have you waited 300 years? It's been 300 years since the Israelites took this land. He says to the Ammonite king, why wait 300 years if this is really your land? Just basically blows the guy's argument out of the water. The Ammonite king decides, you know what? I want that land. It's best for me if I had this land. And so he gets that message and he completely disregards it. He just brushes it off. Doesn't pay it any mind, doesn't pay it any attention. Why? Because his selfishness is pushing him to say, you know what? I want this land. It's best for me to have this land. And so he's willing to sacrifice the lives of all of his troops He's willing to put all of these men who have families up on the altar of his own selfishness, the altar where he's worshiping himself and wanting his own desires. And sure enough, as soon as he puts those guys' lives on the line, they are wiped out. 
Jephthah approached the Ammonites to fight with them, and the Lord handed them over to him. He defeated them from Aror all the way to Mineth, 20 cities in all, even as far as Abel Karamim. He wiped, he wiped them out. The Israelites humiliated the Ammonites. This is our scripture's way of just saying it was for real, legit, crazy town, bonkers, nuts. This is what this is, uh, Jacob Smith paraphrase. What we see here is the Israelites just wiping the floor with the Ammonites. All of these men wiped out, killed, killed in battle, defeated. 20 cities defeated, conquered, obliterated, humiliated. Why? Because their king was selfish. All we're seeing here is the same selfish mistake on a greater scale, on a grander platform. We're seeing sin spread. You know, the spread of that sin, it it can be visible sometimes, or it can be hidden. It can be overt, or it can be kind of subtle. But the reality is that our sin always affects more than us. We've seen a son suffer because of his father. We've seen a tribe suffer because of its leader. We see a nation suffer and die because of their king. But the chapter is not over. And we're thinking, how can we even top that? How can it even become greater? What in the world is this author building towards in this tale? Right before this battle, Jephthah has a conversation with the Lord. Jephthah makes a vow to the Lord. And he says, if you really do hand the Ammonites over to me, Then whatever is the first to come through the doors of my house to meet me when I return safely from fighting the Ammonites, it will belong to the Lord and I will offer it up as a burnt sacrifice. Jephthah decides before this battle, remember this battle on which hinges his leadership potential over Gilead, the battle that's going to determine whether or not he has the power and authority that he really, really wants, that he thinks is best. Before this battle, he decides, you know what? This victory is so important. This victory is absolutely so much what is best for me that I am willing, he is willing to sacrifice anything. Blanket statement. Anything, God, I'll sacrifice to you. I'll give it to you. I'll burn it as an offering to you. We saw the battle. He goes home. And when he came home to Mizpah, There was his daughter hurrying out to meet him, dancing to the rhythm of tambourines. And she was his only child. Except for her, he had no son or daughter. And when he saw her, he ripped his clothes. And he said, oh no, my daughter, you've completely ruined me. You've brought me disaster. I made an oath to the Lord and I cannot break it. And she said to him, my father, since you made an oath to the Lord, do to me as you promised. After all, the Lord vindicated you before your enemies, the Ammonites. She said to her father, please grant me this one wish. For two months, allow me to walk through the hills with my friends and mourn my virginity, my innocence. He said, you may go. And he permitted her to leave for two months. So she went with her friends and she mourned her virginity as she walked through the hills. And after two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed and she died a virgin. What what just happened? What did we just see? 
I'll tell you that this is a passage that we don't often preach. This is a passage that doesn't come up in third grade Sunday school a whole lot. Because it's really dark. But I'll tell you, it's also divided. Right? Theologians, scholars for years and years and years, they're divided on exactly what's happening in this passage. I'll tell you the two options. I'll tell you where I stand. But again, realize it's, it's divided. It's, it's a little bit up in the air. It's open for interpretation. One side, man, they take it maybe the way that we just saw it. The normative reading, honestly, in my opinion, is that she just died. That Jephthah just sacrificed her in the most horrific, ungodly way possible. This is supported by uh, a lot of the grammar. If you're reading through this in the Hebrew, you see uh, just kind of the way things line up. Uh, It makes sense. Uh, You see when he's talking about when his original vow, he's saying uh, it will belong to the Lord and I will offer it up as a burnt sacrifice. Uh, I'll get to the second, but some people, they say, well, she's not necessarily dead because that and right there, it could be an or. And that's a valid argument. Sometimes the word that we see there, it could be an or. Meaning, if it's, uh, you know, if it's a person, I will dedicate them to the Lord. If it's a, an animal or, or an animal, I will offer it as a burnt, I'll kill it, I'll, you know, or offer it like this. But I think the normative reading, what we see is, uh, it's an and. He's saying, whatever this is, I'm going to dedicate it and sacrifice it. Whereas we see this is probably death because uh, the two-month reprieve that he gives her, that is a strong indication for, man, this is a, grave situation, a lot more grave than just dedicating her to the Lord, to serve the Lord in the temple. What we see supporting the fact that she is dead is this four-day annual feast. And what we see, or we didn't get there, but in the next verse or two, what we see is Israel creates a four-day annual feast to honor her, not to celebrate her. Some translations say they celebrate. It's not celebrate, it's more remember. They want to remember and honor this girl, this daughter of Jephthah, whose name we don't even know. What we see is that the writer, he specifically tells us the chapter before this. In chapter 10, he tells us, as I mentioned, the Israelites are starting to fall into worshiping the gods of the Ammonites and the Moabites. And what were they known for? Human sacrifice. Specifically, child sacrifice. Specifically, you're going into battle, and so you take your firstborn and you slaughter them so that the gods would give you favor on the battlefield. I think you can read this as a death. But you can also read it as a dedication to the Lord, meaning that instead of sacrificing her uh, by killing her, instead maybe he just dedicated her to the Lord to serve in the temple. Therefore, she was a virgin. She died a virgin because she lived out her life in the temple as basically a priestess, basically like, think of like a nun, dedicated to the Lord. We see in the life of Samuel, right? His, his mother dedicated him to the Lord, so he served in the temple all of his days. Uh, and in defense of that, the text allows that possibility. It allows that to, to be the case. Uh, the words and expressions used, uh, we don't see a, a picture, you know, black and white, 100%. She was killed by her father. She was sacrificed by her father. There's, there's the possibility to interpret it it to mean, okay, maybe she was just dedicated. Uh, another thing that maybe we read into this where we, it focuses our interpretation, directs our interpretation to this being her being dedicated to the Lord is that God forbade human sacrifice. Right? The God that we know and love, he always was incredibly against human sacrifice for good reason. It's horrific. It's terrible. It's terrible. 
And all these nations around Israel were doing it. God specifically, time and again, are like, don't do that. Don't do that. That's horrible. That doesn't honor me. That honors no one. Don't do that. So some interpreters, some scholars, they say, why would God allow this to happen? This abomination that he calls it. He calls it an abomination in his sight. Why would he allow this to happen? The fact that a judge in Israel would have practiced this is unthinkable. That's where some scholars land. But I'll tell you, this is an issue that is divided. It's an issue uh, that I have a stance. I'm not going to die on this hill. It's what I like to say with a lot of these theological things. Uh, you find a hill, you put your flag on it, you stand there. There's certain hills that you stand on and you die there. Deity of Christ, triune God, salvation by grace through faith. But something like this, I'm going to stand on death. I think it lines up with the story. I think it lines up with the character of Jephthah. I think it ties into his history. But I wouldn't, I'm not going to stand there to my death. I'm not going to fight to the death on that hill. So please don't come battle me. But what I think we see right here is the author giving us this incredibly, beautifully tragic picture where this story, it's ending on the death of a young girl, an innocent girl, his only child. And yet in that moment, the most tragic person, the most tragic figure is her dad who's presenting this pathetic picture of foolish selfishness. That's what we see. God's mind can change. God extended grace in the Old Testament so many times. So many times he would have a law and put it in place and say, if this happens, then this needs to happen. If you sin in this way, this is the kind of punishment that's coming. This is the judgment that's going to come your way. God extended grace time and time and time and time again in our Old Testament. Our God of the Old Testament, he's not a wrathful, different God from the God of the New Testament. Our God has always been loving and gracious in addition to the fact that he is perfect and the perfect judge who has to be righteous. But he's always been gracious. He's always extended mercy. Jephthah knows this. He knows the history of Israel well enough to make a defense for the land, right? He goes through the deed, the specifics of their land. He knows the history of Israel. He knows that God is gracious. And yet, he doesn't go before the Lord and ask him to change his mind. He doesn't go before the Lord and ask him to, 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 to extend grace in this, in, in, in this situation. He could have appealed to the Lord, but he doesn't. Why? Because he's selfish. To the end, he never repents. It's the same thing that we see him bring about with Israel. He sees the sin, he sees this issue, he doesn't repent. And the reality is that when we take it upon ourselves to repress something or to seek revenge on something, when we take it upon ourselves to not seek resolution or restoration and repentance with someone, when we just kind of ignore those things, we think, you know what, I've been hurt or I've hurt this person and I'm just going to ignore it or I've been hurt and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring revenge, I'm going to bring it back against them. When we do that, if we don't resolve sin, we are likely to repeat it. That's what we see here. That's why I think, I think that's the strongest argument for the death of his daughter. Because what we see in this story is that the sin of a father forced his son into isolation. And when that son became a father, his sin, 
his selfishness forced his daughter into death. What we see is a picture of the nation of Israel who refused to repent. And so because of that, they continue to make the same sin. They continue to make the same mistakes. They continue to be selfish in the same way over and over and over and over again. And the reality of that sin and that selfishness is that it spread. It spreads. And it still does. When my friend's husband decided it was best for him to commit adultery and then abandon his wife and child, that decision, that affected more than just him. When my friend's father decided it was best to commit suicide, that affected more than just him. That sin, that selfishness spreads. We might think it's best to be selfish in a certain situation. We might decide it's best for us to have that pride or that deceitfulness or that hate in that situation. But every single time we make that decision, every time we fall into that sin, it's going to affect more than just us. Our sin spreads. It always spreads. But what's beautiful about our God is that he's not surprised by this fact. What's incredible about our Lord is that he is prepared for this situation. Because just as through one, just as through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. Now the law, it came in so that the transgression may increase, but where sin increased, grace abounds. Where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin spreads, but grace abounds. Grace meaning unmerited favor. We know this to be true. Why? Because of the example of Jesus Christ. Because God in his foreknowledge saw that we would make mistakes, that we would sin, that we would do things outside of his will. And that when we made those mistakes, when we fell into that selfishness, that pride, or that hate, or whatever it is, he knew that we wouldn't be able to fix it. We wouldn't be able to mend those uh, gaps. We wouldn't be able to stitch up those wounds. And so just as through one man, meaning Adam, as he sinned, it brought sin into our world. It led uh, to the distribution of sinful natures amongst all of humanity. We are born sinners. We are born running towards death. But God said, I'm more powerful than that. I'm bigger than that. And I'm going to prove it by sending my son, Jesus Christ, who walked out of heaven and onto earth to live, die, and rise again for us. To be righteous and perfect when we could not be that. To to die that death that we all deserve. So that if we call on his name, if we trust in him as our Lord, as our Savior, if we ask him to forgive us of all those sins, of all those mistakes we've made, of all that pain that we've caused into the lives of all these other people, when we ask him to forgive us of those things, we can know we're we're forgiven. Our slate is wiped clean. I can know that there's no condemnation for me because I'm I'm under the name of Christ. I'm adopted as a son or daughter of the Lord Most High. We worship a God who loves us, who's forgiven us. 
And I'll tell you, because of that, because of that forgiveness that we've experienced, we need to take that forgiveness and extend it to others. That's the lesson that we learn through the life of Jephthah. Whether his daughter is dead or dedicated, either way, she was sacrificed on the altar of his own selfishness because sin spreads. But grace abounds. So what we're going to do here for a moment is the band's going to come back up and they're going to lead us through a few more, few more songs. But before that, I just want us to take a moment and, and pray. Talk to the Lord. Confess to Him what, what's going on in our hearts right now. Maybe what is that thing that we're sitting on? Maybe what's that, that pain that we still feel? What's that hurt that we just caused last night? What's that sin that's in our life that we maybe don't even know exactly how it's spread? But we know it's there. We know it's going to move. We know it's going to get out. So we're just going to pray individually and talk with the Lord confess to him, man, where are you? And we're going to use this time as an opportunity to not just confess and get out that junk and, and tell the Lord about this and that, but we're also going to take this as an opportunity to repent, to run the other way, or to ask God for the opportunity to forgive that other person, to seek restoration so that they can repent. So let's, let's pray. God, we we thank you that you are so good, that God, even in the midst of our sin and our, our mistakes, that, Lord, your grace abounds. Lord, your mercy is, is greater. God, as quickly as our sin can affect the lives of others, Lord, we know that it's so much more powerful. It's so much more effective even to see the grace spread. So, Lord, we just ask right now that you would convict us, that, Lord, the Holy Spirit, would grab a hold of our hearts and show us, I mean, where, where have we been hurt? What are we still kind of holding on to? Where do we need restoration? Where do we need reconciliation with someone because either they've hurt us or because we've hurt them? Ask, just take a moment in silence right now. Ask the Lord to show you, to bring to mind what's that situation. We've all got one at least. Ask the Lord to bring to your mind where is it that you need to extend forgiveness or where do you need to be forgiven? Ask him that right now. If you would take a moment now and ask the Lord to to provide an opportunity to provide the, the correct time and place for maybe that restoration to be brought about. And maybe it's not tomorrow, maybe it's not even that soon, but ask the Lord to, to show you, to, to, to make a way for you to initiate a conversation, maybe a tough conversation, where you need to ask for forgiveness or where you need to extend forgiveness to someone else. Ask the Lord to, to provide that opportunity, not only just make the space for it, but ask the Lord to empower you to walk into that graciously. That whether or not that conversation ever happens, that you would at least on your own repent of maybe what you've done wrong. Repent of maybe the bitterness that you've held against that other person for hurting you. Whether or not that conversation happens, ask the Lord to empower you to extend forgiveness in the same way that you've experienced it 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ask him that right now.